Catherine and I originally connected on Instagram. Once again, another way to leverage your professional network. In today's episode, we're going to be chatting about project management and that pre-job planning when it comes to health and safety. Catherine has spent some time as a project engineer, as a assistant superintendent, superintendent project manager. If we wanted to ask some questions about the project management side of things, I think we landed in a really good conversation. This is your host, Amy Orsnow, and welcome to the Transmit Safety Podcast, a podcast that will help you achieve a holistic approach to workplace health and safety with practical solutions introducing new or alternative ways of approach to put that value of safety into action. So fill up that workplace-approved beverage of your choice and tune in to today's episode. So welcome to the podcast, Catherine. Glad to have you here. Tell our listeners a little bit about you, your career path, how you landed where you are today. Oh my God. It is the most squiggly career path out of people (laughs) that are like my age that I know of. Like I've done a little bit of everything and to give you like a frame of reference, right? It's 2023 and I graduated college in 2016 and I have been a project engineer and assistant super and a superintendent for a couple of general contractors. And then I switched over into the subcontractor realm as a project manager and then as a business development manager. And between all of that, I also started what's known as Space to Build. It's an online community focused for or focused on emerging construction professionals. And there's also a podcast under the exact same name where I highlight voices of women in the architecture, engineering, and construction industry to highlight the different opportunities that we have available to us in our industry and to talk about the takeaways that we've picked up along the way so that the listener can actually have actionable items to tackle the very next day. So you might be the only person who identifies as female on your work site, but you can tap into Space to Build to know that you're not alone. And if maybe you're interested in getting and starting a career in the construction industry, uh, tapping into that Space to Build network is also a potentially really good resource. I've listened to some episodes. I loved it. Hence why I wanted my listeners to connect with you. Why do you see construction? as one of the kind of great industries for young professionals to tap into? Because everybody knows it. There's a workforce development struggle, labor shortage on every front imaginable in construction. It's not just in the field, it's in the office. And it's not something that I think most of the society knows about, right? When you look at a construction job site, you typically see a bunch of men running around with tools and so you see a lot of the, the physical day-to-day building, but you don't really understand what that entails and you don't really get a good sense of it from a lot of media. So because that exposure is not there and no one really talks about it, you don't know the sh- crazy amount of people involved in a construction project. You have the the different trades, the specialty trades, like it's more than just plumbing, electrical, mechanical, like you're, you've got steel, you've got glass, you've got elevators, right? And then on the office side, I think is even more of a mystery because they are behind closed doors. 
And you can't pick, well, you probably could pick them out on a job site, but you don't know what they do. But in the office, you've got your safety people who are another crossover role. And then you've got your project managers, obviously. But you also have people in risk management, in procurement, in marketing, on the financial side. Like that list is ever growing. And I think every year I learn about new job opportunities that are in our industry. And that's part of why I'm so excited about my own podcast and like finding all these different people that the listeners can learn about the different roles that we interact with. Like I've got somebody that's doing stormwater management and somebody that's a Firestop consultant. And these aren't things that you're like, oh, I want to go and pursue these jobs. Like they just happened along the way for these individuals. And it, sometimes it's you don't even know that you would be interested until you meet somebody who is involved in that. I was doing an audit for an elevator mechanical company. And when I was doing the interview, I would ask the worker, so how did you get into this industry, like elevator mechanics? And the response was, well, my dad was doing it, or I had a cousin who was into it. And it seemed like it wasn't a career option for any of the people unless they knew somebody who was already in it and then heard about it and went, yeah, I think I would be interested in that. Now, construction is vast and wide, and there are so many layers and of what construction is. What has your experience been in the construction industry? What I mean from that is like residential construction, industrial construction, heavy civil. What has been some of your construction exposure? Okay. So I have definitely stayed more on the commercial side. When I was in college, we learned more about residential construction and commercial construction, but we heavily focused on the commercial side because that's where a lot of the industry ties were. That's where the market is. That's where all the big bucks for pursuing a career in construction plays in. And it's the most common area that you find people working in. So I've just always stayed in that lane. It fits my personality really well. I could explore a lot of different types of projects through the commercial sector because that opens me up to multifamily, which it sounds residential, but it technically falls under commercial. I get access to recreational opportunities, offices, churches data centers, the list goes on and on. So I've, I've played around in those different arenas. I helped build a hotel, like a, a, a really trendy boutique hotel in DC, which was a pivotal project in my career, actually. And then ultimately landed in more of an interior fit-out job or role rather as an assistant super and a superintendent. And I did some data centers. And then I also did a lot of office spaces. And then I did some of that from a different perspective of being a business development manager for a site work company and coming at it from a glazing perspective. So then I focused on the doors and the glass for office buildings or retail storefronts. That's quite a... So even within the commercial construction industry, so niched it down to commercial construction, it's the experience and the potential in that commercial construction industry is still very wide and and varied as well. From your time within kind of that project management perspective, and I would say that superintendents manage projects as well. 
I'm not just saying the PM, but anybody mm-hmm. who was involved in that project management aspect should, in my opinion, be very aware of health and safety. But I want to ask you from your role, from your interaction, what has been your interaction with health and safety from that pre-project planning phase? So before I answer this, I was curious to see what you meant by a pre-project planning phase so I can better answer this question. (laughs) Depends on your answer. (laughs) Yeah, for me, pre-project planning is prior to boots on the ground, prior to the, the shovel in the dirt, prior to mobilization on site, prior to the workers actually rolling up and starting the work. That's what I mean by pre-project planning. But hey, what is your definition of pre-project planning? (laughs) Nope. I was in that arena. I just didn't know like how far in advance are we talking about? Because in my different roles, I was involved in different ways where that like timeframe for pre-planning was drastically different. So for me, I think like pre-project planning goes all the way to looking at the jobs to say, which ones are we even going to bid for and how are we going to bid for it? And including health and safety in your bidding discussions and the costing for competency and the costing for how many pylons you're going to need and the costing for the health and safety engineering controls. To me, I would go all the way back to looking at a job and saying, do we even want to bid on this? That to me is pre-project planning. (laughs) But again, (laughs) I'm not involved in that. My definition might be a little bit unicorny. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that keep those numbers in mind. I just personally haven't had the experience of that being a thought in the process of bidding on a job. Like, I think sometimes it's, if I, when I was in the glazing side and I was talking about certifications because I wanted to make sure all of our guys were up to date. I had to defend why we needed to make sure we had equipment training. We had our CPR, first aid, all of that. And I had to leverage it and be like, you want to work for these big, big companies. You're going to have this as a requirement. And that's coming up in a year because I know you already have those contracts, but we don't have these certifications in place. So he looked at it from purely a financial side. So I think maybe here and there, when he was looking at projects, he would consider safety, but from a financial perspective, but it wasn't like a a priority, if that makes sense either. Like he'd be like, okay, I want X amount of people to tackle this work in this time frame, And he'd maybe have to consider how much money have I spent or how much money have I spent on this individual to get all their training and how much will it cost me moving forward with them and things like that. But to go back to answering your question, so when I was a project manager at that glazing company, I had months and months to prepare for a project in terms of safety. I was actually the one responsible for designing our safety plan, for Ah. scheduling our trainings, managing our certificates, and bridging the gap between our company goals in terms of safety and the general requirement or general contractor and the owner's safety requirements, and then having to translate that back to the crew and acclimating them into toolbox socks on a weekly basis, which was like pulling teeth, to be perfectly honest. 
And then I had to talk our own superintendent into understanding risk management planning and the importance of thinking these things through ahead of time and just overall, like just looking ahead on a job to make sure that we're prepared. If anything, if you're not going to look at it from a safety perspective or people first perspective, financially, if glass breaks because someone's not careful, you lose money, you lose time because we can't always just turn around and get glass the next day. And if we do, it's way more expensive. That's a completely different perspective. So I found myself constantly having to remind them that in order to to get them to take safety seriously, they had to, I had to look at it from this financial perspective. And I think about numbers in order for them to start connecting the dots of why we need to be practicing better behaviors. So yeah, that's that's just one example of where I fit into the pre-project planning in terms of safety and health. Yeah, for me, I always say you can pay for safety up front. Like you pay for safety, period. You can pay for safety up front and forecast those costs and build it into your budget. Or you can pay for safety reactively and not have as much control over that cost when an incident occurs, when tools and equipment need break, fix, repair, when something gets damaged, or if it's severe enough, if a worker gets injured. So yeah, it's going to cost you a couple hundred dollars or a thousand dollars or more to train this worker. But what is it going to cost you to replace that worker if they get severely injured? And the conversation about money, I find has been very influential. Businesses are in business to be in business. You need Mm -hmm. to understand how to talk about money and leverage it in that discussion about here's how safety can help you save money. And here's how health and safety can help you control the loss of money. And and which one of those conversations would you like to have? (laughs) Because I'm here for it. So when we talked about that pre-project planning phase, you mentioned, well, what does that mean to you? So I wanted to ask you, like, from your experience, what are the phases of a project planning? So it depends on how far you want to go back, right? There's so much involved in a project before you even see it on a project manager side, right? Like you've got the people who, the clients, the owner who have these thoughts and they have to think about, okay, can we afford this? What could this look like? What if when we bring an architect in, what are those costs? And what is that process like? Is it a historical project? So there's a lot of research that goes on really early on. And sometimes this takes years to get to a point where the job even starts. But in this arena is where you get like the budgeting. So budgeting is before bidding happens, right? Like budgeting, they're like, they're just trying to figure it out. Like, where do the numbers lie? What can we expect? And then they might do a couple of these budget exercises with contractors before it officially goes into like a a bidding process where you can then move on to the pre-construction once you get awarded the job. So once you get awarded, you're looking at that pre-construction phase, there's kickoff meetings, you start looking at procurement of materials, you look at scheduling, you look at permitting, which in some cases can be a real pain because that can really impact your schedule and you have zero control over that sometimes. And then once you get all those like front end things going, which truthfully, there's a lot of overlap in a lot of those areas, but we have to prioritize certain trades prior to starting the job. And then we end up starting the job and we still have to finish out contracts. We have to finish out submittals. 
personal tracking material progress. So there's only so much that we can do before even starting on the job site, which leads me into project execution portion, which is where you find a lot of the job financials, the RFIs, so like requests for information, drawing updates, and obviously the actual building process. And then as things are starting to wind down, you move into commissioning. So that's things like punch list walks and just tying things up, making sure things look good, that everything that is in somebody's contract is complete. Anything that's like leftover from procurement because of insanely long lead times is wrapped up as well. You're training for usually like the utilities and software that gets implemented into a project build out. HVAC is a pretty common one. And you've also got closeout, which is final inspections and wrapping up your documentation. When it comes to those kind of overall phases, I'm going to ask you this question. From your experience, when does health and safety actually enter into the picture from those project planning phases? So I think it depends on the project team and on the individuals. You've got the people who are focused and motivated by safety from a financial and efficiency side, like we've talked about. And then you've got some people who lead from a people first perspective. And when you aren't thinking about people first, you don't necessarily prioritize it with every step or you'll let certain things slide because you don't think they're important enough. And then health and safety just becomes a checklist. In order to get you on this job site, I have to give you a sticker. And if I have to give you a sticker, that means you have to watch this video and I'm going to just turn on the TV and you're just going to sit there and you're probably not going to pay attention. Or it's like, oh, crap, we know we have an inspection coming up. So keep your PPE on you. Don't use fixed blades if that's not okay on your job site. And then when the coast is clear, their focus shifts and they're like, whatever, we don't care. To an extent, obviously. You don't want to see anybody get hurt. But the priority then becomes, you're right, get it done. Just just make it work. Because sometimes the the safety requirements or suggestions, I'm going to use air quotes, they get in the way of the work that we're doing. For example, oh, snap. You went there. I did. <laughs> you said I did. It. Okay. <laughs> and like, I'm saying this as a superintendent because I have had to just learn to deal with certain things in a way that I didn't anticipate because I thought, okay, if these are rules, people are just going to do them. But when they constantly get in the way of the guys doing the work, it becomes more of an argument and it's a fight right? It's keep your hard hat on. That should be a given at all points in time. But when you're up in a ceiling, everything's really tight and your hard hat gets in the way and you're already craning your neck in all these weird directions and you're trying to get your hands in it. And if you've got giant hands, it's like another thing that's in the way in the ceiling, plus your tools. And whatever you're installing, it's probably not going to be small, right? So it just becomes a hindrance in their perspective. And so I've learned that people are like, they'll be like, okay, fine, take off your hard hat and just get your job done. I think that that's part of the conversation that health and safety practitioners and professionals need to start having is when people are deviating from those air quote rules or your procedures, it should be a reflection of like, how can we get the work to be safe rather than just put the hard hat on? What are some alternative ways of approach? How can we change what we're doing from a health and safety perspective in order to allow the work to occur, but still in a safe way? I think there are times where I've been talking with other health and safety professionals or practitioners, and they're stuck in this box about this is the only way to do it. 
but it's 2023 and maybe we need to be able to start thinking about alternative ways of making the work safe and, or limiting the amount or having a bump cap available versus a hard hat. I'm with you. I'm going to say it on my podcast. I have too been standing in a field and going, why do I have a hard hat on my head? There is no overhead <laughs> hazards. There is no side impact hazards. I'm standing in a remote field by myself with my crew and nothing is going on. And I think that, yeah, I'm just not a fan of those blanketed policies that just don't make sense because that's where you see workers deviate. That's mm -hmm. where you see supervisors and the management team say, you know what? Yeah, we are going to look the other way this time, or you can take those gloves off for that work. You can take your hard hat off and we'll just look the other way, even though it's a non-compliance. It's about the approach for me. I have seen health and safety be included at the beginning of all of those phases, right from the defining the scope of work from the contracting employer's perspective. I've also seen it left out and then contracting employees and contracted employers are pivoting and scrambling as the job progresses because they didn't think about permits. They didn't think about lockout, tagout. They didn't anticipate having to work from heights and that ladder is not going to be feasible. So yeah, you should have scheduled for a scaffold or you should have anticipated an aerial work platform <laughs> for, this, exactly. for this type of for this work. I'm going to transfer the conversation a little bit because I like to have the conversation of what you focus on is what you track. And some of the things that you should be focusing on, you shouldn't be. And some of the things you're tracking, you shouldn't be tracking. But for me, I'm biased. I think we should be tracking health and safety in mm -hmm. the overall project. And I agree. when we think about project goals, unfortunately, Companies still are focused on those reactive lagging indicators like TRIF. How often and how much did we hurt people on the job site? In comparison to those leading types of statistics, like how many quality inspection reports were completed? How many competency assessments were done? Were our communications effective and efficient? So we don't have those boring AF safety meetings <laughs> where, <laughs> where the workers are going, what a waste of my time. When it comes to the overall goals of the project, from your experience, what kinds of discussions occur when it comes to health and safety about this is the goal of the project? So I think it depends on those priorities, right? Like we talked a lot about when it's a financial priority, but when you've got a people first lens on, it's a part of every discussion, like you mentioned, like people are planning ahead for equipment use, right? They're thinking, okay, we can't use ladders here. We know this is going to be a tight space. We know that this, this schedule is tight or budget's tight. So let, like, let's get on this ahead of time. Let's schedule something out or at least make a plan and know when we'd have to absolutely place that order for that piece of equipment so that when the time comes to build, we're doing it as safely as possible and we're not relying on the ladders or they're thinking about burnout and productivity even, right? So what you see a lot of is that on time, on budget mentality, which is fantastic for getting the job done. But what you sometimes lose in that hyperfixation 
is the people aspect of that and trying to figure out, okay, if I have these guys on a 10-hour shift four days a week, how does that impact our workload? How does that impact the schedule? Versus, okay, I'm going to have them work every day. And then you know what? I think I'm going to tackle on a Saturday because somebody who didn't understand the schedule or just threw out a number to the client said, we can get this done in one week. You're creating some issues there, right? Like people aren't, aren't sleeping well. People aren't focused. People are burnt out. And then people become very unsafe because of steps like that. So when you're thinking people first, that goes into that planning process of scheduling things out and trying to balance it with the budget. And so from your perspective, then, how do you define a successful project when you're wrapping things up, when you're packing things away, putting it into the filing cabinet box? How do you sit back and go, that was a successful project? Okay, so I definitely would consider the KPIs like revenue, growth, profit margins, customer satisfaction, things of that nature. But I think what means the most to me after each job is not only did we complete it on time or on budget, but did we do it without sacrificing the well being of the team? And did we grow our relationships with the client? and our project team, and very importantly, with the subcontractors. Because at the end of the day, like I want to make sure that with our crews on site, that we've built mutual respect and trust for one another. And on a complete like soft skills side of things, like I want to make sure that they had a good time. Like, were they happy on the job site? Did they have fun? Did they want to come to work every day? Because that all feeds into this relationship that you're building with these crews and they're going to be much easier to work with on future projects because they trust you and their crews were happy. And if you set up that strong relationship, they're more likely to support you when something's not going well on a job site. And they're like, you know what? We'll eat that cost or we'll help you eat that cost and we'll make you what look you good in front of other people. What do you mean bad on a job site? Things go bad on a job site? What? What? I think, no, I don't think I meant to say that. Construction's perfect. Nothing ever goes wrong. <laughs> when I'm doing some of my contract training, one of the questions that I love to ask people is how many of you have been on a project that it went 100% according to the plan 100% of the way from start to finish. And I've never had somebody give me a thumbs up because parts show up that aren't anticipated or the supply chain isn't wrong or the workers, somebody calls in sick or they want to take a holiday. There's so many different, the client comes with a red line drawing. They're like, no, we want this wall here instead of there. And all of a sudden it's like, uh, yeah, that's going to yeah. be a little bit of a wrench. Yeah. So yeah. I so think it's, it's funny you say that because when I think of a successful project on a personal level, that project in particular, like I had somebody severely mistreat me on that project that wasn't a part of our subcontractor crew, but all of them witnessed it. And they spent the rest of the day looking out for me, checking in on me, making sure things were good. And at the end of the job, I asked them, like, how do you feel about the project? Yada, yada, things like that. And a lot of them said they enjoyed coming into work and they had a fun time like interacting with the other crews because I gave them the autonomy to have their own discussions and then come back to me with solutions. 
so that it was more of a flow on a job site. We had things on our drawings that weren't actually on in the project itself. We had permitting issues. We had this and that, like everything that could possibly go wrong, plus COVID, like the start of COVID on that job. But they still left feeling really good and proud of the work that they put into it. And I think that that's part of your focus of the human factor of put people, including the people, the human aspect in the overall project planning and the project management and just realizing that we're all people and we Mm -hmm. need to work together and figure out a way for to be happy at work. That's the ideal, isn't it not? So that the next time they go, oh, Catherine's, Catherine's on our project. It's not, oh, Catherine's on our project. It's, oh, Catherine's on our project. (laughs) It's a whole different kind of spin to it. Mm Mm-hmm. When one of the things that I have paid attention to in my world in construction is I generally find that in that pre-project kind of kickoff phase, when you're onboarding either internal workers or you're onboarding the contractors, things can be overlooked if there isn't a solid kind of system to support that process. From your perspective, what do you feel is most often overlooked when it comes to that health and safety aspect for before the project is formally kicked off. If you could give the advice to my listeners to say, you know what, from my experience, this is what I feel is the most overlooked for health and safety during that pre-project kickoff phase. And here's how you could fix it. Or here's what you should be thinking about to include in yours. Where would you land on that? So I'm going to sidebar real quick. Absolutely. Are your listeners predominantly contractors or predominantly safety people? My listeners are safety, but they're either client safety, they're contractor safety, or they're a little bit of both. So when we, I find health and safety people interact on all sides of the project. So from the client phase, from the contractor phase, from the subcontractor phase, based on your experience prior to a project being mobilized, what do you think are some key health and safety criteria that should be included in the project phase, regardless of who's listening or who's being impacted? I guess my listeners are health and safety listeners. So they would say, here's what we should be advocating for to our project managers to include in that kind of kickoff phase. Okay. So for me, I would think Bringing in somebody that's got more of the field experience into those meetings on the front end to talk about sequencing and scheduling specific to that project. And to also have a sense of what that space looks like physically, because there's a lot If you're very serious about taking that safety route, there's a lot you can do with that field perspective, right? You can look at what is scheduling really looking like? What sequence do we need to go in? When do we need to emphasize certain safety concepts, right? When do we need to bring in material to set up around the elevator? Because what I've seen is, We had to budge that in the field. We had to plan ahead for that. We had to make sure we had a labor or two or three on site for a day or a whole week, depending on how many floors we had per shaft 
to build out barriers to keep our workers from falling into the shafts. And I think if you're not aware of the nuances like that, you're not going to catch that because depending on the size of the project, that can be really expensive very quickly. Or if you might unintentionally tell your client that it'll take X amount of time, but you're not factoring in all the safety steps that need to happen throughout the project that adds time to the schedule. And once you hit the ground running on the project, or ooh, I've got to squish in the safety stuff and things start to get missed along the way. I love the fact that you said bring in somebody from the field who has experience with that work because they look, I've been on a lot of those sitting down at the table with the site superintendents and they look at the schedule and it's like, clearly whoever did this plan hasn't done the work because they've only planned for two days to get this done. This in reality is a four-day job or yeah, it's two days if I have 20 people, but I only have 10. And having that frontline application experience, I love that you made that recommendation. (laughs) Well, thank you. It's it's definitely made an impact on how I've seen my projects operate as a superintendent because for the company I was with, the project managers were actually the ones that built out the con or the schedules that went to the clients. And I had one project manager where we've had so many conversations. We had a couple jobs together where I was just like, don't take this the wrong way, but can I be more involved in that scheduling process before you start submitting things to the client? Because once I get a schedule from you guys, they're not feasible. And I am wearing people out. I'm I'm not somebody that likes to cut corners. So this puts me in a really tight area. And we end up working incredibly long hours that don't make sense for our budget either. So yeah, building in and knowing when to step up and advocate for yourself and your position and what your priorities are, as well as the overall safety value. Now, the kind of in the last role, if you're listening and you're like, I want to know more, I want to listen more, how might our listeners get a hold of you or find you? What is the best way for them to connect? So I keep it simple. You just type in space to build on Google. You're going to find me one way or another. Got a website. My email address is Catherine at space to build.co. I'm on LinkedIn a lot, Instagram. I will say I'm not nearly as active on Facebook and Twitter, but those do exist. Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) I'm also (laughs) not as active on those as on Facebook or Twitter, but I will definitely include all of your links into the show notes. Thank you, Catherine, for being a part of the Transmit Safety Network. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being a part of the Transmit Safety Network. For more resources and to join our weekly newsletter, go to transmitsafety.com.